Welcome to Mac Geek Gab, episode 939, another palindrome for Monday, August 1st, 2022. <laughs> to Mac Geekab, the show where the goal is to learn at least five new things. We accomplish that goal by taking your questions that you send to feedback at MacGeekab.com, along with your tips, your cool stuff found, our tips, our cool stuff found, sometimes even our questions, and we put it all together into an agenda, and hopefully every week we come together, we have some fun, and we learn something. Uh, here, enjoying my... Uh, throat coat tea for whatever I've got going on with me in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, back from Chicago and now in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are we today, Mr. John F. Braun? Good. The travel was a lot less traumatic than I thought. I so. am glad to hear that. That's amazing, man. That's good. <laughs> Uh, and, and Mac stock. So yeah, you, you were able to attend Mac stock for the first time since 2019. Uh, how, mm -hmm. how was it getting to see everybody? How was the, the, cause that, the best part about Mac stock obviously is the community aspect of it. How, how was that? Oh, there was a lot of community. Great. That's the key. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the sessions were kind of light because people for various reasons had to pull out. Sure. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, some of it's the presentations. There was still a lot of good stuff. Um, good. And the other part, as you pointed out, is the uh, community. And there was plenty of uh, plenty of that. That's good. I mean, the whole concept of Mac Stock started with just a community gathering, right? Barry Falk, our, our a premium list, Mac Geek Up premium listener number one, uh, mm -hmm. decided after a few years of not having Macworld Expo that he wanted to get a bunch of his favorite podcasters and, and favorite people together. So he hosted a barbecue at his house or a, a cookout, a, a catered event at his house is what it turned out to be. It was actually a pretty big deal. And I give a lot of kudos to Barry for, and his wife for, uh, for pulling it off. But, um, but that's when Mike said, well, wait a minute, if all these people are going to be in town, we should throw a conference during the day. And Max stock was born. So yeah, the community is always at the core of it. I like it. That's good. All right. Uh, let's just get to some of this stuff. Phil has, I have no particular order today. I'm in a brain fog today, so I have no idea what I've got. If I've got the thing or, you know, just another thing, but I've got something. We'll see how we do. Phil has a tale of warning, a PSA, if you will, to share. He says, gentlemen, I got caught. So did my brother. And I'm sure there are others without yet knowing what Phil is about to share, folks. I can tell you, I was one of these people one day, and I can't believe we didn't share this on the show. Uh, he says, it turns out that when you migrate to a new iPhone using the direct transfer or backup and restore procedures, Google Authenticator does not move its entries with it to the new phone. A separate export and import is required. That takes the presence of mind to be thinking about Google Authenticator when doing your migration. For most of us, we think about the Authenticator app the next time we need it. 
which is almost always after you've wiped and sold your old phone. In my brother's case, he was using it as two-factor authentication for crash plan. And when there was no fallback for authenticating, he had to contact support and have them reset his account. You could argue that all of this improved security, but the inconvenience slash security ratio is fairly high. And that leads to a bigger question. Are authenticator apps interchangeable? And can we do something to solve this? And the answer is yes. Uh, I, as I said, I got caught by this too, John. I, uh, years ago, you know, I was using Google Authenticator because that's what it said to use or whatever I was using said to use, probably Google. And, uh, and then it was like, wait, all my entries are gone. It was, you know, weeks later that I, that I noticed this. And that's when I moved all of my two-factor authentication into one password. Now, it starts becoming less two-factor and two-entry when the password and the, uh, the you know, the, the, the one-time code, if you will, are not only stored on the same device, but stored in the same piece of software. However, that comes, you know, I always say we choose our point on the continuum between ultimate security and ultimate convenience, right? And in this case, trending a little bit more towards convenience is what works certainly for me and probably for a lot of us. So yeah, I moved, uh, I moved everything into one password so that it has the benefit of yes, carrying to your new devices with you, but also being available on all your devices. So I don't need to go to Google authenticator when I'm logging in on my Mac. It just has it right there again, not two factor anymore, but, a little bit better in terms of actually being able to get into my stuff. So I don't know what do you, what do you do? Have you ever gotten caught by this, John? No. Okay. And how, how do you solve this problem? Do you use Google authenticator? Do you, do you use something no. else? Okay. I use a LastPass. Okay. And, a fan. and LastPass syncs all of that stuff, all the two factor stuff with all your devices and all that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not using it for two factor though. They have reminded me that I could. So how, where are you storing your two factor authentication stuff? If you're not using Google authenticator. Well, I'm not using two factor authentication. So on anything I'm using apples, but I'm not using Google's or last passes. Yeah. But what happens when you have to log into a website that requires you to use two factor authentication? Like what do you use then? I mean, there's some sites that like forget about Apple or Google, like there's many sites out there that use Google Authenticator as their method of providing you with, uh, you know, two factor authentication. So what do you do for those websites that require the one time code? Uh, You know, you log in username, password, and then it comes back and says, "Okay, now enter your one time code. How do you do that? Um, They either text me or email me. Okay. Apple is smart enough to usually pick that up and it just populates it. Fascinating. I, I'm, I, of course, there's many that will do the texting thing. And yes, the, the, the way Safari does that is awesome. I'm just shocked you, you don't have like any banks or anything that, will, that require you to use Google Authenticator, which again, Google, you nope. don't have to use Google Authenticator. You can use 1Password, maybe LastPass. I don't, I'm assuming yes, but I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of my banks has a checkbox for uh, using a token. Um, huh. Yeah. You know, which That's, is a hardware device. That, sure. You know, gives you a different number every minute or something like that. But um, Interesting. 
I'm, I'm just no, shocked that you've gotten up... this far without mm-hmm. needing that. <laughs> huh. Yeah, so am I. Huh. <laughs> I'm assuming LastPass has this functionality in it. In fact, I seem to remember it from when I was using it. But wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm just flabbergasted that like Slack, you're not, uh, you must have two-factor authentication enabled for Slack. I thought we forced that on our Mac Observer and, and Mac Geekab channels, but maybe not. Huh. Maybe not. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The one I have one bank that requires me for doing wire transfers to use a token. And, and now I can use an app, but it is a separate app to do it. Um, it's I can't. It's not like the, you know, scan the QR code with um, with one password. Well, since you haven't been through it. It's actually pretty cool. What uh, 1Password does is the way that you add something to your, I'll call it your two-factor authenticator app so that we're not saying Google or 1Password or anything, is it shows you a QR code on the screen, and then you need to scan that typically with your phone. But if you're doing it on your Mac, at least 1Password lets you drag a little screen capture window over the QR code, and it does it right there. It's actually pretty cool. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, if you ever find yourself, John, or anybody out there who isn't yet in this scenario, if you ever find yourself needing to use 2FA, uh, remember that your password manager likely can do it, including Apple's. So, yeah. All right. You want to take us to Larry? Sure. Sweet. All right. Kind of a two-parter here. I'm not sure if these are related, but maybe they are. Um so Larry says, okay, so I've been dealing with this for many years and finally decided to write. I have tried everything to fix my sync problems with my Apple TV and my Samsung TV. I have an Onkyo receiver that the Apple TV goes through. It is an older receiver, I will admit. When I watch Apple TV, the mouths are out of sync with the sound. It's annoying. I just figured it is par for the course with an older receiver. However, I finally decided to write and see if we knew anything that could help. Yes, I have updated. There was just an update. That didn't fix it. I restarted the Apple TV. I have done the calibration numerous times. Nothing. Any ideas? Or do I just need to get a new receiver? Uh, getting new toys is good. So maybe that'll work. But but then he followed up. And I, I think this solved the problem or a problem. Um, I already figured out what kind of troubleshooting steps you might take me through. I checked other applications on the Apple TV and they seemed to be better. So I deleted HBO Max, which was the one I was having problems with. And then I reinstalled it and it does seem to be a little bit better. So I guess my problem is resolved. Maybe. Um, um, As a general tip, though, I have found that when apps act up, whether they be on the Mac or on iOS, um, sometimes you got to delete it and reinstall it, and then the problems go away. Something gets corrupted somewhere. Yeah, I I think his issue, so he describes that he's got his Apple TV connected to his Onkyo receiver, and then that is connected to the TV. And so what that tells me is his receiver... And and I hate that we still use this term receiver because it might not even have an FM receiver in it. Right. But it's what we use. It's fine. Uh, It tells me that his receiver, among other things, is also an HDMI switch box. Right. So his Apple TV isn't plugging directly into his TV, 
It's plugging into a switch box, which also happens to be part of his receiver. And then part of the signal is going to the sound processor and amplifier. And the other part of the signal, the video part of the signal is going up to his TV. And so what you're dealing with here is a scenario where the TV is processing the video signal and displaying it at a different time than the receiver's uh, signal processor for sound and amplifier are processing that audio signal and playing it. And so you're out of sync. And this is super common. So oftentimes you will have options in your TV to adjust the sync. Other times you will have options in your receiver to adjust the sync. I know my soundbar, my Sonos soundbars have the options to do this. And then there's even a way using the Apple TV and your phone to have it adjust the sync right in there. It actually plays some sounds at the same time that it's showing images on the screen and your phone calculates what needs to happen. And then your Apple TV can do it and you can find that in settings that only works for some apps. So if you can do it with your TV and or your your sound device that's going to be the best way to go. And I even have this like a more, I don't want to say it's more or less common, another common way of connecting your Apple TV to your entertainment center is to connect the Apple TV to your actual TV and then have uh, an HDMI cable or an uh, optical cable go from there, just carrying the audio signal. It would be called HDMI arc. ARC or EARC, E-A-R-C, to carry just the optical, the audio signal or the optical cable would carry the audio signal to whatever your sound device is, a receiver, a soundbar, whatever that could be. Uh, and I've even seen it with that. And and some, and you just have to make some adjustments so that the, the time it takes to process the audio is the same as the time it takes to process the video and you see things in sync. So it, it there, there's... There's likely three or four places that Larry could go and do this. Now, the fact that deleting and reinstalling the apps fixed this, I guess uh, that wouldn't have been my first thought. But, hey, you know, if it ain't broke, man, <laughs> don't fix it. Right. So have you ever had sync problems with your with your stuff, John, or did yours just kind of works? Um, I had decoding issues and then you suggested something, which I think you just described, but rather than using my receiver as the HDMI switch, you were like, well, why not use the TV? And the good news is that my TV, my current TV, though, uh, it had a mishap and I have to get another one, Uh Uh, but they're cheap. But, um, this LG has three HDMI ports and then I do the you know, toss link optical uh, to the receiver. Yep. And that was a better path. So if you're having sync issues, maybe using another, yeah, again, maybe consider using your TV instead of your receiver as the switch. A TV as the switch box has been the least headache prone method I've found in all of the different ways I've done this. And I've done them all. Uh, I've had a receiver that had a switch box in it. I've used an external switch box and then now I use my TV and it's, yeah, the TV is a better way to go because it's just one less thing. Like the TV switch box is built to work with that TV and that makes a difference. And then if you're just going, like you said, optical or, or, uh, e-arc over HDMI out, 
to your whatever your sound yeah. device is. It's a it often is a like I said, less headache prone. So, yeah. Yeah. The only challenge here is that my current TV has three HDMI ports. Um, that's unusual based on the survey of similar models. Like I said, I have to replace it for various reasons. Um, did your, did your TV break, John? Um, kind of. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. I'm sorry to hear that, man. That sucks. Yeah. Electronics don't last. <laughs> Put them on a UPS. <laughs> These days. No, nah, I don't think it's that. Okay. It's just. You know, then again, uh, you know, the, the, the you know, I, uh, f- 43 inches, what works for me. Yeah. And they're like 300 bucks. Yeah. 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 Whereas the first one I bought back in the day, uh, Samsung, I think it was $1,700. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I like the, the 65 inch, you know, 4k OLED screen that I have now, has a lower retail price than my 42 inch plasma. My first HD screen did like by half. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you're, yeah, you're going to be fine, but maybe you can go OLED or, um, or maybe, maybe, bun, you know, notch it up to, I don't know, get, go 50 inches. Enjoy spoil yourself. I mean, I know you've got a yeah. short viewing angle or a few short viewing. Well, distance. the thing is I got a stand and, you have to be careful yes. how wide the stand is. Because actually, last time I, I bought one, I bought a slightly larger one, and it was too wide. Oh, too wide for your stand? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can always... Yeah, the, yeah. the little feet there. Yeah. You I can, probably could have rigged something, but... Yeah, you, well, you could put a piece of plywood across the thing to make it wider. Um, oh, no, no. Well, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm starting, I'm starting, I, whenever I have to solve these problems, I always start like, okay, what would the, you, you know, super, you know, low cost, get it done solution be? And then it's like, okay, how can I step up from there? But you could also go and do a visa mount, right? And put it on your wall. So. Put it on the wall. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Or they do sell replacement stands that connect to the visa mount, like not for the wall, but you know, for the, for the floor. So mm-hmm. there's, there's all kinds of options, but uh, you were, you were saying something though. I, I, we, I brought us down a tangent here. You were saying that your TV has three HDMI inputs. The the one you're needing to replace. What you were, what were you saying that other TVs you're finding don't have that many? Correct. Really? That seems weird. Huh? Like, for example, this one is discontinued, so I can't get it because my preference would have been to just buy the same model. Sure. But its replacement only has two HDMI ports. Check check larger sizes. You might find that, like, when you get into the 50-inch or larger realm, that you're back to, four, you know, four HDMI ports. Because mm-hmm. every TV that I've looked at has has four these days. But... Our living room has a longer throw, so we're looking at, you know, 50 inch and 55 inch, 60, 65 inch and up. So, um, yeah. So it might be time to spoil yourself anyway. There you go. All right. Let's see if we can help Tony here. He says, uh, I have a thing with contacts uh, that Apple support couldn't help me figure out. I'm getting bunches of contacts mysteriously added to con- to my contacts app that I did not add. 
I'd like to stop them from being added and globally purge the ones that have been added to date. Uh, and he sent some screenshots where he showed a few contacts, one, you know, multiples for for the same person in different cases. And one had like all his notes and the other one just had like maybe an email address and, uh, you know, a, a LinkedIn profile or something else. And so uh, I've I've seen this before. I fought this battle before on my own stuff. And the, what you want to do in contacts is go to the view menu and make sure it is you are seeing the groups. It's going to add a third column to the left of your contacts. And that's going to show you where the sources for all of your contacts. It's not just going to show you the groups, but it's going to show you headers for iCloud. You might have one for LinkedIn. You might have one for Google. Uh, and those things are going to be the things that bring them in. Now, you can go into contacts and select multiple contacts and merge them. If you have two people that are uh, the same, uh, you, you would go to, I think you uh, highlight the multiple cards and you go to the card menu and choose merge selected cards. And th that way it would know, ah, okay, you know, this John F. Braun in my iCloud is the same as John F. Braun in my LinkedIn. And now you've got all that data together. So that'd be one way of doing it. The other way would be to not link extra contact sources into your contacts. And you do that by going into contacts, preferences, accounts, and go in here and uncheck the enable this account box uh, in order to figure out, you know, where you're, where you are and, uh, and or uncheck the, the enable this account box. I told you I was in a fog today, folks, I, I, you had warning, uh, but that would turn it off. And then and then you're done. Like if, if you see LinkedIn in there or, you know, Google, if that's where they're coming from, then just turn that off and, and you're done. If you do choose to have multiple accounts, um, I have found contacts. Let's it lets you set in in the preferences. It lets you set a default account. Right. So that when you go and just say new contact, that's what it adds it to unless you change something. I have watched that default account change multiple times. It, it, it has a mind of its own. So if you're going to have multiple accounts in there, set your calendar once a week to go in and make sure that it is uh, adding to the, the right account. So, yeah. Um, also in our chat, Kiwi Graham, our chat at MacGeekUp.com slash discord. Kiwi Graham says, Check on your iPhone to see which apps have been given access to your contacts because something else might be populating this. And so go to settings on iOS privacy contacts and see what that says for you, because that might give you a clue if you don't have any separate accounts. Oh, I like this. This is good. This is what I love about doing the show is I learn stuff, too. That's the whole point. Thoughts on any of this, John? Um, the way I solve the problem is the only account that I use to store contacts is my iCloud. Yeah, right, right. But I'm still, as you pointed out, but in the past, Internet accounts would let you link to other sources. And I'm still trying to clean out all that cruft. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, I think I did, you know, one time merge and, and I got rid of most of the duplicates. Yeah. And just mushed them all together. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I like yeah. that for, to see if iOS, you know, see if any iPhone apps are, you know, pushing things into your contacts. That's a smart, I like that. 
Because even if even if you only use iCloud, which is what I've done, too, I finally had to standardize and be like, OK, I can't deal with this multiple contacts thing. Um, I had to when I was do, teaching that class at, at the university, I had a I was connected to their you know LDAP server or whatever. And I had access to all of the contacts for every student and teacher. And it was super handy when I needed to send emails out to people. But it kept defaulting to that. And it was like, no, I, I, if I add a new contact, I do not want it on my UNH account that's going to go away someday. I want it in my iCloud account that hopefully I get to control when that goes away. You know, it's not managed. Well, it is managed by Apple, but you know what I mean. Anyway, shall we move on? Is this one? Have, mm-hmm. we, have, we, have we beat this one into yeah. submission? Okay, great. Uh, David in Texas says, um, I have a question about the best way to transfer files to my new Mac. Uh, I'm getting an M1 Air, or maybe an M2 Air, to replace my 2015 MacBook Pro. And uh, the main issue has to do with setting up the new Mac when I get it, whichever model that turns out to be. Over the years, I've transferred files from one iBook to our MacBook to another, upgraded a hard drive on a MacBook, switched to a current, yada, yada, yada. Once Migration Assistant became a thing, I've relied on that to move files over, and it's always done a great job. Plus, along the way, of course, I've upgraded the OS on those machines multiple times. I have no complaints about the data transfer process on any of those occasions, but I do understand the buildup of cruft has likely been ongoing and I'd like to start my next machine with as clean a slate as possible. So is it still your recommendation to sometimes not rely on migration assistant and to instead manually download apps again and otherwise transfer files directly? If that's still a good idea, what's the best way to bring over data in Mac programs like music and photos and contacts so that they maintain their current formats. I also back up an iPhone to this laptop and not to iCloud. So I'd like to ensure that I don't use that. Don't lose that functionality as well. So, um, yeah, I think personally, I think it is a good idea every few years, maybe every five years, maybe more than a few years to let the cruft sit and reinstall things from scratch with all the syncing that happens these days. It's not as bad as it used to be to start fresh. Uh, you know, you mentioned a few apps. I'll start with the last one since we just talked about contacts. If you're syncing your contacts to iCloud, well, then you don't need to do anything other than log your new Mac into iCloud. Right, John? I mean, like that, that'll bring in calendars and contacts and perhaps your mail, perhaps not. Uh, it might even bring your photos in if you've got everything in iCloud photo library, uh, music potentially. Yes. Uh, for photos and music, if you want to just copy the libraries over, you can do that. Uh, just copy them from your home photos and home, uh, pictures or home, uh, home music folders on your old one, copy that to the new one. And then I think it's the option key, right, John, when you, when you launch the like when you launch the photos app and launch the music app, I think it's the option key that lets you choose a library to, c- to connect it to. And mm-hmm. then, right. Is that right? And then you're good to go. So a lot of this stuff is pretty easy these days. That option key trick might be the most important one for you. Um, but yeah, with all the syncing and IMAP for email and all of that, I mean, you want to make sure it, Apple's apps 
contacts and mail specifically do, I think, do a good job of calendars as well of delineating things that are stored in iCloud or somewhere in the cloud versus on my Mac. And if you see things in the on my Mac section that you want to keep, then you need to manually copy those over. But otherwise, the rest will just sync from the cloud, or at least it should. So I don't know. I, what, what do you think, John? Um, I'm a migration assistant person, so. Yeah, um, same. But do you ever, like, uh, you know, once every half a decade no. or so? No, you just let migration assistant do it and, and live with the consequences. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now it does have, now I'm looking here, I don't know how, what version this is, but I'm looking at a screenshot from Migration Assistant and it does give you some level of granularity. What I'm looking at now, it shows applications. There's a checkbox there and then it shows the home folder of the person and then it has a little expand. Yep. So I'm thinking that may be another way to migrate photos and, and stuff like that. But I, I can't open the triangle because it's a screenshot. Because it's a screenshot, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess I would worry, what else is it bringing over? Uh, is it, mm. it going to bring over all of the system preferences stuff that, that is exactly what listener David might want to avoid? So, I, like, that's the question. I don't, I don't know the answer to it, obviously. But, yeah. Yeah, well, there is a checkbox next to something titled System and Network. So, hmm. He may want to uncheck that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, the worst that happens is you you do a a granularly controlled migration assistant and then realize, oh, this brought over too much cruft. Wipe the machine, start from scratch and do it differently. Either be more granular about it with migration assistant or do your nuke and pave and or and, and then just manually copy things over. So, yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, but my advice, before any migration that I do, I make sure I have not one, but two backups. Maybe I should have three. But um, I make sure Time Machine is updated to the latest, um, and then I do a a clone. Yeah. Yeah. Just in case things go bad. Yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've got one comment uh, floating over on YouTube from Brad Mac pro saying that migration assistant from Intel to Apple Silicon is not going to work. My experience has been different with that. I, I haven't had issues migrating from Intel to Apple Silicon. That's, that's worked fine for me. And, and it's been over a year since I've done it. Like it worked fine in the beginnings of Apple Silicon max. So, uh, but, but I share that feedback because if he's saying it, it means he's encountered a problem or he's encountered someone with a problem. And so, you know, your point about backups, John, is is key. So, yeah. But you've also, you know, you said you make two backups. You still have your old Mac as a backup, too, right? Migration Assistant, mm-hmm. in theory, isn't going to be, you know, copying that over. So, right. Or, you know, so. Um, right. Dave, I think I heard you say feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I said it in the beginning of the show, feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's where you send that stuff in. That's right. Yeah. Kiwi Graham in uh, Discord comments that photos app on the Mac remembers the last photos library that was opened. So instead of doing the option click when opening photos, you can just navigate to where your photos library is stored and double click it. That will open photos. And then subsequent launches of photos will point to that library as well. And, uh, and he also points out that he has migrated multiple clients from Intel to M one with no problems. So whatever Brad Mac 
pro experienced um, is unfortunate and hopefully rare. That's the idea anyway. All right. Are we moving on, John? Sure. All right. Cool. You want to take us to listen uh, to David? David Another, a different David. David. Yeah. This is a, a good question. Um, I believe you covered this before, but I'm looking for a way to travel with the least amount of dongles, cables, etc. I have a MacBook Air, an iPad, Apple Watch, and iPhone. Do you have a preferred solution? Um, you know, you're going to have to do this on a case-by-case basis. Um, unless all your peripherals are USB-C, but I highly doubt that. <clears throat> sure. Um, so you only need some sort of da- uh, dongle or dock or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, make a summary of all the things that you have and all the connectors. Um, for example, I just traveled and Anchor had provided a couple of docks uh, to both me and you, I think. And the one that I brought with me was exactly what I needed is that it had um, uh, an Ethernet port in case there was an Ethernet port to plug into versus Wi-Fi. Um, and this hotel actually did have an Ethernet cable, Dave. I don't know if it was live, but um, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I brought an anchor one that had uh, Ethernet port and two USB A ports. So you're talking about a a dongle that connects to your computer to give your computer connectivity to your devices or to the devices in the hotel. Yeah. Yes. Great. So I found the anchor 543 USB C hub, which I think is probably the current version of of, you know, what you're talking about here. Uh, and I'll I'll put that in the show notes just to just to get us there. So because um, it's a USB-C hub, it's got some uh, USB-C ports on it. Actually, I don't. Ah, this one doesn't have any USB-A ports or maybe it does. Oh, no, it does. Sorry. Yeah, it's got actually this one's great. It's got power delivery input. uh Power delivery output to your computer, a USB-C data port, two USB-A ports, HDMI, and Ethernet. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that that would be a good one. Is that, I assume that's similar to what the one you have, yeah? Yeah, and they have um, well, they have a more button, but I, I don't want to fiddle with the web page while we're discussing things. Because that's just rude. Um, <laughs> uh, here's the one thing I found on my travels, Dave, though. Um, USB-A, everybody offer, every, every, any place where I had the potential to charge, the only thing that was available was USB-A. So that was either on the plane, which is nice. Um, the planes that I were on actually also had a 120 volt, which that's handy. Yep. Um, and then the airports have charging stations and the hotel had charging stations, but they're all USB-A. So that's why that was important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense because USB-C could be a power delivery scenario and you don't want like that's not going to work in it for the masses. Right. So USB-A simple five volts. Everything just works. You have your USB-A cable to whatever you need to charge. It's not going to charge your laptop. Whereas if you had a USB-C cable that was only five volts or USB-C port, that 
you could plug your laptop in, you wouldn't get enough juice out of it, right? So I think it's smart that they stay with USB-A for, uh, you know, for sort of the ubiquitous power ports that are in mm-hmm. hotel rooms and airplanes and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the other annoyance is that the is that the phone still has lightning. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So bring a, an A to lightning cable and you're good to go. Right. I, I yeah. also highly recommend some and we talked about it on the show. Uh, I don't know, about six months ago. Put some A to C adapters in your travel case. You can buy them cheap on Amazon. And that way, if you if you find yourself in a scenario where all you have is, you, you know, your 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 pile of USB-C cables and a USB-A port, you're like, oh, good to go. Put them in. Done. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing, unfortunately, I didn't pack a USB-A to lightning cable. I thought I had. Sure. So as a backup, um, I brought a battery pack. OK. And then what came up uh, a little tangent here. But when I was at the airport, I noticed the sign of all the things that you're not allowed to bring on the plane. And they had a battery. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> I'm like, everything has batteries. You know, I mean, my computer. My, uh, so you did a little research. Thank you very much. Um, there is a limit. Yes. Um, and you eventually did the conversion. But I think it's what, 20,000 milliamp hours? Yeah. If you run the TSA, you're, you are right. There's the My TSA app. And they have in it, there's a section called, can I bring? And you can type in whatever you want and it will tell you. And uh, if, when I typed in battery, I scrolled down to lithium batteries and it says in your carry on bag, uh, lithium batteries with a 100 watt hours or less are allowed. And we did the math before the show. And that means 20,000 milliamp hours. So uh, most of your charging batteries are going to be fine. Uh, Lithium batteries that are installed in a device are fine as well. It's the loose lithium batteries that start to get to be an issue. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, and it, as long as it's less than 20,000 and in your carry-on, you're good to go. So, But yeah, get that MyTSA app. That's a great, handy little resource. It, I, I think almost every trip I do, especially with other people, somebody always asks me, like, hey, you know, like when you did, you're like, oh, you can't bring a battery. I'm like, I don't know, hang on. Let's go. And the nice part about it is if you've got the app there and there is an agent that says, no, your 10,000 milliamp hour battery is no good. You can pull out the app and be like, OK, hey, look, I checked this before I left. Here we go. And if you're nice about it, they might even still let you on the plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sorry. So we answered half of David's question, right? We answered what dongle he would need to bring to connect his computer to other things. But. There's the other part of it, which is how to charge your devices, which we haven't gotten to yet, other than hopefully finding things and maybe a battery. Uh, again, I will go back to Anchor. They they just came out with a new line of stuff. I haven't gotten to test any of this yet. They call it their GAN Prime. So this is their iteration on gallium nitrate. Now in nitride. I can't remember which GAN stands for. Doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter to people that have to make it. it we're fine here on the show, but um, but they've got some cool devices, and the one that really jumped out at me is for a charger, the Anchor Seven Twenty Seven charging station. It is a uh, it it's got a a cable that plugs into the wall. It has two AC outlets on it, two USB ports, two USB A ports, I should say. 
two USB-C ports, and uh, uh, and it's powered by by GAN Prime. So you got you can plug many things into this. I don't want to say you can plug everything into it, but you can plug many things into this, and it's super flat. So it looks like it would travel very, very well. And the AC outlets are three prong outlets uh, for, you know, U.S. stuff. So and it's 100 watts total. So this seems like the the right thing to get next. And I'm I'm eager to check it out. But but something like that, that has the ability to charge multiple things. And I really think two USB-C and two USB-A are the key. And this thing's got both of those. Mm -hmm. And that way. You know, it, it for a while I was fine traveling with just one USB-C and that was for my laptop. And then I upgraded my iPad and it was like, ah, wait, I need power delivery for this, too. So two A's, two C's. You got your phone, your watch on the A's, your iPad and your laptop on the C's and boom, you're good to go. So I like it's clearly some thought went into this and I'm I'm stoked about that. So hopefully between all of that, David and everyone else are uh, are good to travel. Yeah. Cool. Anything else on this one before we move on to Patrick and the international travel tips that he's got to share? I know it's exciting. He says, uh, I recently traveled to Europe and went to Germany, Switzerland and the UK. And I learned a few things. The first tip is to actually get some cash. In the local currency, I agree with him on this. When we were in Greece, we found we needed cash, too. He says, I was surprised that I needed cash since I seldom use it here in the U.S. I was even more, it was even more difficult since Germany is on the euro, Switzerland is on the Swiss franc, and U- the U.K. is back to the British pound. Also, Germany is very much a cash-centric culture still. Interesting. Um, he also found this Unidapt universal multi-charger. This thing, John, looks like it's going to have everything he needs and everything any of us needs. He says it has fangs for all the international plugs you encounter. So you slide the plug out that you need and it plugs into the wall. Um, it has three USB-A, one USB-C, actually two USB-C, one sort of low power and one high power USB-C port. So three USB-A, two USB-C, one of which is power delivery. I can charge my Apple watch, my iPhone, my boys noise, Bose noise canceling earphones. Say that 10 times fast. And my 16 inch M one MacBook pro all at once with a single device. He says, I think it charges the laptop a little more slowly, but the battery's so good in that computer. I don't really care. It's a 61 watt um, device. So depending on what else you're charging, it's, it's going to jump around. And that thing's only 36 bucks. So if you've got some international travel coming up, this seems like the uh, the thing to have. So thank you for that, Patrick. Very, very cool. Uh, he has a few more tips. He says, if you're renting a car, bring your iPhone car holder that typically sticks into the vents that you use day to day. I was in a foreign land trying to navigate with an iPhone in hand, and it wasn't pretty. This is killer advice. I still keep, you know, I use CarPlay in my car, so I don't need the the vent mount anymore. And my vent mount now lives in my travel backpack. I don't even put it in my like charging bag that might be in my suitcase. It's in my backpack. So when I get to a rental car, it's just right there. I can grab it and put it on. Thankfully, most rental cars, in, at least in the U.S., have CarPlay as well these days. So you're kind of fine. But, um, but if it's not, you've got that little adapter. I love this. He says, lastly, check the data speeds on your plan. I have T-Mobile, so my plan works internationally and was just fine while in Europe, with one big exception. 
Apple and Google Maps would not load quickly enough to be useful, and I had to upgrade my international plan to a faster speed. It would have been fine for texting, etc., but not for driving. Wow, that's interesting and good to know. Yeah. Thanks for that, Patrick. Cool stuff. I love this. Yeah, I should get one of those mounts because uh, right oh. now I have a um, uh, suction mount to mm-hmm. the windshield. Um, and it happened again. So as I was driving to the airport, all of a sudden I get the notification on the phone saying, uh, yeah, I'm too hot. Yeah. Right. Because you were driving to the airport during that heat wave we were having here in New England. So the mm-hmm. sun was probably baking on you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and the interior of my car is dark. So, of course, that absorbs the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Putting um, it on the vent mount, you've got AC blowing right on your phone. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I was able to solve it is, number one, remove the case because it acts as an insulator. All and right. number two, don't charge because charging the phone generates heat as well. And once I did those two things, it it was fine. Smart solution. Oh, I like taking it off charge. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Really just anything in the sun. I found I had a gig a couple of weeks ago and I use an iPad on stage sometimes as a cheat sheet uh, because sometimes I need those and other times just to control the mixer so I can uh, adjust my my in-ear monitor mix. And we got on stage. It was a hot day. Everything set up. I sat down halfway through the first song. I looked down at my iPad and it's like, yep, I am too hot. And so uh, I am going to be, I'm not going to be available for your use. And so I, it was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hmm. in the shade. So I moved it into the shade and within about, you know, five minutes, it was fine again. It had cooled off and I could, I could control my ears or I think, I think that's all I needed to do. I don't think it was for a cheat sheet for the first few songs. Thank goodness. So yeah, I've all. Stuff now is there a case on that iPad? There is actually the the what I did to solve the problem was was cover the iPad. So I left the case on and I I covered the uh, the front of it to keep it from baking in the sun, and that that actually helped. Um, believe it or not, that that helped. So, but yeah, your idea of taking the case off that you know depending on the type of case you have that makes sense. I like it. It's good. Uh. Shall we move on? We've got some follow-ups from prior shows, my friend. Excellent. Sweet. Listener Alex brings us back to uh, last episode. And he says, I was listening about your quick tips about the useful shortcuts like command backtick to roll through windows of an app. And again, backtick, because we've got a lot of questions about this, is the on most Apple keyboards, the key in the upper left uh, below the tilde on some keyboards, but it's a it's a it's an apostrophe going in the wrong direction. That's why I call it a backtick. I don't know, but anyway, uh, he says command backtick to roll through the windows of an app, or command left and right arrow to move through spaces or virtual desktops. Uh, that can pitch, that pitch continued such shortcuts thread from previous episode, and uh, I again agreed that keyboard shortcuts are very convenient. But the following speech from Pete. About that feeling when you were standing over someone's shoulder watching the person struggle with something on a computer and feel stressed yourself described right what I was feeling at that moment. I absolutely do not want to steal such a useful topic. No, no, no. Uh, He's got a good tip. He says, I encourage the audience to go to system preferences, keyboard shortcuts and take a look for which actions virtual shortcuts exist. 
This is a great thing. If you want to learn more keyboard shortcuts, Apple will show many, not all, many of them to you there. And that way you can see which ones you might like uh, and you don't have to wait for somebody to tell you about them. Says, for example, uh, Alex continues for him. Such are the show all windows of the current application, show all windows via mission control and open screenshots creating panel. And you can actually see what the shortcuts are for those and even change them if you want. So pretty good. I like this. That's good. He has a um, anything to add on that before. He has a cool thing to tell us about, too, about adding perhaps more complex keyboard shortcuts. He says, if the list of keyboard shortcuts offered in system preferences does not include some feature, but the feature is provided in some of the menu bar sections while you are in the desired app, you could add it manually to the shortcuts list by a plus button in system preferences. He's totally right about this. Uh, he says, but what if you want to have a keyboard combination for a more unique feature? Of course, you could use keyboard maestro, but... There is an option to have the feature for free in an Apple app. And this is where he blew my mind. He says, you could easily create an action set in shortcuts and bind it to a key combination. For example, a command to resize the window to fit the entire screen. Definitely, this requires some efforts, but isn't it fun to have a geeky task? And he said, yeah, it, like you find all the windows where the window index is zero. So that's the current window. And resize to fit screen. So two shortcut actions and boom. Now you have a shortcut that will resize a window with a keyboard command because you tie, you bind it to a keyboard command and you're good to go. I love this idea of using shortcuts to create new keyboards. Um, keyboard uh, shortcuts, I guess is the right word. Yeah. Huh. I never thought about binding a shortcut to a keystroke and it's because shortcuts came from iOS where that's simply not an option, but on the Mac, you absolutely can launch a shortcut with a keyboard command. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. I like it, Alex. That's cool. Huh? Yeah. I remember we helped someone in the past. So another cool, uh, I think the challenge was how can I restart or shut down my Mac? Uh, with the keyboard combination. And the thing is, out of the box, that's not an option. Right. Um, but if you make a shortcut, and what I did in my case was I assigned a function key. Um, so I won't hit it accidentally. Um, oh, that's that smart. That does the trick. Uh, uh, I like it. That's really smart. Yeah. Right. Yeah, adding a key that requires two hands even, you know, to just to make sure you're not accidentally doing it. I like this idea. Uh, really smart, man. Cool. All right. Uh, you want to take us to Case with a follow-up from last week's episode? Yes. Uh, so Case said, I was checking some settings for my mouse and I saw this accessibility option that might solve the issue you mentioned in the last episode. I think the issue was I don't want to accidentally move the cursor around. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, but I guess it only works if you have a mouse connected. The option is ignore built-in trackpad when mouse or wireless t- trackpad is present. Um, actually, it's in, yeah, so system preferences, accessibility, pointer control um, is where you look. Fascinating. All right. That makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, that does render your trackpad useless on your laptop if you if you do plug in a mouse. But yeah, that might solve mm-hmm. this problem. Yeah. Ah, very. Yeah. I love that Apple uses accessibility to hide these. I mean, I, I suppose it could be argued that this would be a, a feature that fits into the accessibility world. But by and large, I think it's kind of it, it spills well beyond that. Let's say it that way. So, yeah. All right. Nice find, Case. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, Bob brings us back two episodes. He says uh, we were talking. Pete shared a story about his mother-in-law uh, whose Apple Watch helped alert Pete's wife that she had fallen and needed help. Uh, and Pete needed to get there to open the door for the EMTs. Well, he says an easy way to allow remote access is via your garage doors. Uh, they already have the ability to open via remote. Pete just needs a way to allow that to happen over the Internet. My cue from the Chamberlain Liftmaster door opening company makes a Wi-Fi connected Internet accessible garage door opener that can be activated from the phone. It's the My cue smart garage hub. And I it, when I got Bob's email, I remembered, John, wait a minute. I have one of these in a box and I've been waiting to set it up. I'm going to do it. Ten minutes later, I was good to go. And this thing, it's 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 less than a hundred bucks. I think it's a lot less than a hundred bucks. I think it's I'm gonna look on Amazon now. Yeah, it's forty seven ninety five today on Amazon for the MyQ Spark Garage Hub. All it does is um becomes your a, another garage door opener. So you teach it how to open your you know, and it seems to work with most brands. I don't have a Chamberlain garage door opener that I connected it to. It also has a little sensor that you put on the garage door itself. You just stick it to the door and that will let it know whether the door is open or closed, which is kind of cool. So you get this full functionality for 50 bucks and it's Wi-Fi enabled by itself. It is not HomeKit compatible, but Chamberlain also sells the MyQ home bridge that will make this HomeKit compatible. Or if you run the, and MyQ's home bridge has a space in there. So it's the MyQ space home space bridge. If you run the software Homebridge or Hoobs, well, then you can just do it that way because there is a MyQ plugin for Homebridge and you can boom. So now I've got my garage doors. I already had one garage door that was connected to, to HomeKit via a different method. And now I've got two and it's great. And, and you can control this from over the Internet uh, with the MyQ app. So you don't even need to go the, the HomeKit route. And yeah, it's great. Uh, it's very, very good tip there bob i like it i like it because then pete could open the the door for the emts from his phone so that's pretty cool pretty good any uh thoughts or or tips to add to that one john um well i could mention that i have a smart ac control and before i got home i turned on the ac so it wouldn't be as stiflingly hot (laughs) And that's smart. So, so this is a um, and a third party control for like a window unit air conditioner, right? Yeah, um, I think it's a Tomi makes it. Um, but yeah, and it's similar. It, it just reminded me, it's similar to what you mentioned: is that you train it. Yeah, because there are only so many, or you tell it. I guess in, in the app, you can say, "Oh, I have a Fetters or whatever brand, whatever." Yeah, right. And then it'll try different ones until the AC. 
wakes up. I like it. Huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The Atomi air conditioner control. Hang on. I'm looking on Amazon here. Oh, it's like 20 bucks. Oh, dude. That's a great idea. I love it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Here was the bad news, Dave. Yes, sir. Because I didn't leave the heat on. I just left the house sit there on air conditioned. Right. And it got up to like 80 something degrees, which I was able to tell with my smart thermostats. But one of my thermostats disappeared. Oh. And that I couldn't talk to it. And when I got home, the first thing that I did is like, okay, what's going on here? And I looked at it and the screen's dark. Oh, dead battery. Uh, no. Oh. Um, apparently this model, which is battery operated, it doesn't run off a uh, uh, wire. Um, apparently it got so warm that the batteries had shifted and oh yeah, it got up to like 86 degrees with no AC. So, huh. uh, apparently the batteries shifted a little bit, you know, I, I took the cover off, fiddled with them and it came back and has the same battery level as the other two in the house. Wow. So, huh? So you could set so, like here in the office, I set my, my air conditioners. I have mini splits, uh, in the office. And they have remote controls and I can set it when I'm not here to keep the temp at 80 or below. So if I'm away, like, you know, like during a massive heat wave or whatever, you know, my my devices don't just cook because like you, I run a bunch of electronics in my house, even when I'm not here, like my disk station and my computers and getting, you know, getting much above 80 degrees is probably asking a lot of these devices. So. Uh, so I have mindset to kick on when it's 80 and, and just bring it down to 80 and that's it. Can you do that with the Atomi thing or is it just like, can you set a, um, a, a temperature at it, which it should, it should kick on? Um, it's dumb in okay. that it doesn't know the temperature, but it does have up and down controls. So if you know what you last set it at, then you can fiddle with it further. I, I set mine to 70 degrees. And that, that seems to no, I mean, would the Otomi, does the Otomi know the ambient temperature, not the temp your AC is set to? Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, could, it lists that. Could it's the, not terribly accurate. But. Yeah, but still, if you set it, like, if you, t is there a way to automate it so that if, say, the temp hits 82 degrees, you could have this thing kick your AC on and bring it down and then turn the AC off when it's back below 82? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So that might not be a bad idea to keep your batteries from, mm -hmm. you know, from boiling the next time you go away. Yeah. My disappointment, though, is that I have an action for all my thermostats saying if the battery gets below a certain level, send me a note. Sure. And it didn't. <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, but maybe it may. I mean, I don't it doesn't sound like the battery got low. It just sounds like it swelled and and moved. Yeah, it, it just moved a little bit. Yeah. So. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, you want to take us to listener John? Yeah. Mm. Uh, let's see here. I'm, I'm having trouble reformatting an external drive I once used as a CCC backup. I no longer have CCC, or do you? On this machine, but this error comes up every time I try to erase the drive. Any idea how to fix this? Um, By CCC, you mean shot. carbon copy cloner? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then he sent us a screenshot from Disutility, 
Um, and sure enough, it says a racing Mac clone preparing to erase the drive, checking mount state. But here's the important part. Uh, farther down, the volume Mac clone on disk whatever couldn't be unmounted because it is in use by process 328, otherwise known as com.bombic.ccc helper. So guess what? CCC isn't gone. No, it doesn't sound like it is. <laughs> yeah. So one thing in, in the future, uh, you may want to consider using something like App Cleaner, which will get rid of all the little bits and pieces like this helper app. Um, so to deal with this, I think what needs to happen is you have to get rid of this com.bombitch.ccc helper. Uh, one way would be to go to system preferences, security and privacy, full disk access, which is where this guy lives, and disable the entry for com.bombitch.ccc helper. Though I don't know if that's going to quite do it. But here's the good news. Uh, if you click on an entry on that screen, it will say show in Finder. And if you say show in Finder, it's going to highlight that app in the Finder for you. Um, I'm not sure if you can delete it straight away from where it lives because it's kind of a low-level component. Okay. Yeah. I, app cleaner um, might get rid of it though. Like I, 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 I that's, but if he doesn't have CCC anymore, then I don't know. Oh, well, one solution would be to reinstall carbon copy cloner and then yeah. use app cleaner <laughs> to remove it. Well, I, right. Like that would be, mm -hmm. I, yeah. Or like, I think clean my Mac will look for things that are left over from, mm previously uninstalled like it it, it 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 i think so yeah but yeah yeah that's a good point if they don't if the app's not there then you can't trigger the uninstallation process um i believe it's brian monroe who put a link in the show notes here for uninstalling carbon copy cloner and uh carbon copy cloner has its own uninstaller right in its menu or you can manually remove the files and it lists where they all are. So this would be another, uh, and it also talks about how to manually disable the privileged helper tool that you're talking about. So we've got a, we've got a link in the show notes that um, maybe you can share back with listener, John, John, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, that way the answer is the answer is there. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you, Brian Monroe. This is what I love about doing the show live. There's some things that get a little crazy doing the show live, but, you know, it's good. Um, John, we've been doing some trades with some other podcasts, and I would love to talk about the uh, the one we're doing this week, if that works for you, my friend. Okay. All right. Hey, look, every Friday and Sunday, Slate's popular daily news podcast, What Next, brings you What Next TBD, a clear-eyed look at technology, power, and the future. From fake news to fake meat, algorithms to augmented reality, host Lizzie O'Leary is your guide to the rapid technological changes reshaping our world. And those changes aren't always visible, and they aren't always what they appear to be. That's where TBD comes in. Lizzie and her guests help listeners parse out what matters, what doesn't, and what's next. 
Subscribe to What Next TBD in your favorite podcast app. And thanks to Lizzie for doing this swap with us. All right, John. Um, I noticed this week when I ran the uh, the Ring Rapid Ring app. So uh, I, I use for my smart home stuff. I use a bunch of Ring things. I have a, a couple of Ring. I have one Ring doorbell in one spot, and then I have two ring like security light slash camera things. And I always would use the rapid ring app, uh, which was made by the ring people to see things and get my notifications. If there was somebody in the driveway or whatever, because as the name implied, you would launch the app and it would immediately show you what was happening live. You didn't have to jump through hoops like you would, if you ran the sort of more bloated ring app. Well, the ring folks have done away with the rapid ring app because they've made the ring app more efficient so when you tap on those notifications, it brings you right there. You don't have to jump through all the hoops that you used to have to. So uh, if you're still using the rapid ring app, delete it and then go into the ring app and turn your notifications back on from there so that you're getting those notifications and all of that good stuff. So I just figured I'd share that on the show. I also wanted to do wait. Do you uh, do you use do you still use your ring stuff? Right, John, you have some some ring devices, no. don't you? <clears throat> oh, I thought you had. Didn't you have a ring doorbell? For a little while, I still have one, but I replaced it with the Eufy, and I like that's right. Yeah, and at least at that point in time, Ring's detection algorithm was a bit too jumpy, and I would get all these false positives. Yep. Uh, Eufy's, I found though this may have changed. Maybe I'll give it another try someday. Um, but yeah, Eufy's algorithm for defining the area where you want a notification uh, at that point was much better. So nice. Yeah. We, um, we moved the, the primary doorbell from a ring to a Eufy for a variety of reasons. One was the, the size of it. The ring one was too wide to fit with the new door that we got. Um, but, but I, I do tend to like the Eufy doorbell better. Uh, I have the, the ring doorbell, like I said, in kind of an alternate location now, but um, but yeah, I still use their their floodlights. And I recently we put in a patio with a hot tub and. Um, I had to change the ring. Uh, the the floodlights notification area for when it turns its light on to not include the area where the hot tub is, because I go out there at night often and I don't like when it you know, turns the light on in our eyes when we're just hanging out in the hot tub, enjoying the stars. So, uh, so now I have it that way and I can turn the light on with my voice. If I so care, it's bizarre though. I can only, this is weird. And maybe somebody out there can, can help me with this because ring is now an Amazon owned product line, right? Why is it that if I say to the a lady, turn on back porch light, it says I can't turn on the light uh, from, you know, via voice, but I can show you the camera, which is impossible because the device that I'm talking to doesn't have a screen. So I'm super confused every time this happens. But my Homebridge uh, ring plug in, if I if I tell Siri, turn on back porch light, it turns it on. It's totally fine. So why can't Amazon's ring integration with the A lady do that? This doesn't make sense to me. And it like it's been this way for they've had the ring brand. They, they, they acquired it like over a year ago, maybe two years ago. It's just it baffles me that 
the integration. I have to use like this home bridge cooked up hack together thing. I mean, it works very well. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know. It seems a little weird to me. So anyway, if somebody knows how yeah. to make the a lady do that. I would like it because I'm a lady is in my Sonos move speaker. And I often don't have my phone out there with me. So I would love to be able to do it with the a lady. Maybe I need to hook the a lady to Homebridge. Maybe that's the, the solution. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Now, my only caution to you about excluding the hot tub is you will not get a notification if any of the wildlife, like a bear, I think I've seen a video of a bear going into someone's hot tub. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. I don't, I don't need, uh, I don't need to know that. That's going to be fine. Uh, if I'll look out the door and if I see a bear in the hot tub, I'll, 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 I'll stay inside. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, South by Southwest changed the name of the South by Southwest Film Festival for 2023. It is now the South by Southwest Film and TV Festival, which I think is great because there's so much stuff. Like the the, the lines are su super blurred between film and TV now. You know, we get these, you know, four episode uh, series. And is that a film that's just spread out across four things? There was, in fact, there was last year at South by, there was the movie about. Oh, why can't I think of her, their name? Uh, oh, Demi Lovato. Uh, that when I saw it at South by, it was a one. It was like I watched it in one fell swoop when it came out on Amazon. I, I believe it was Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime. It was a six part series, which was a better way to watch it because it was like super heavy. It was about her dealing with addiction and. Um, finding her herself in a whole lot of different ways. And it like, it was a lot to consume all at once, but breaking it up made a lot of sense. So this whole idea of, you know, the TV and film festival helps that just, you know, it's nomenclature. It's good. I like it. Mm. Though I question the use of the term film because I don't think anybody uses film anymore. Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> let's let's look at no no no. I I I'm a I'm a stickler for language. I I like what you're saying here. So I am looking at dictionary.com at the definition of film and uh it's interesting. There are two nouns. Oh wait, more there's more nouns. Right. Movies. Uh so in the in the uh, movies definition, there is a strip of transparent material, usually cellulose, a similar strip uh, covered. So, yes, these physical things that m maybe we're using, maybe we're not. And then simply film refers to a movie or a motion picture. So so we are OK mm -hmm. using the term film for uh, for movies. So at least there's that. Yeah. From what I understand, though, is that most theaters have digital projectors. Right. I think they actually send them a disc pack. That's that's I think you're right. Yeah. But a, a film is a movie, so it's not just mm -hmm. the thing. So we're OK. The language right, has right. evolved. We're there. It's all good. And language should evolve. Although I still am not entirely happy that the word literally has evolved to and, and the the net effect is. We no longer have a word that means literally anymore. And that's tough. Another pet peeve while we're here, because it seems to be one of those days, is when someone qualifies the term unique. That is binary, right? Unique is unique. It doesn't need to be very unique. There's no such thing. 
It doesn't need to be mostly unique. It doesn't, there's no qualifier required. It's unique or it is not unique. (laughs) There it is. I've got a related one. Go ahead. Um, So I'll get solicitations via email from people where it's okay if you email me. And it always cracks me up when I get exclusive offer just for John. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not just for me. It's probably, I don't know, John, you're a pretty special person. It might just be for you. Who knows? Uh, all right. We got, uh, yeah, there's time for one, one last thing here, which I'm going to try and find for us. Where the heck is this? Let's go. Come on. Uh, Adrian brings us to this ever-evolving Google Sheet, which lists app compatibility for the iOS 16 beta. As more and more people are starting to run the beta, this becomes more and more relevant. And then also, as we're getting closer, we're probably, what, you know, six, maybe seven weeks away from iOS 16 being uh, in release mode. I think it's probably time for me to put it on my... uh, on my on my phone so yeah there you go so we'll put a link in the show notes to that but handy little compatibility list which lists uh, whether it is compatible or not or somewhere in the middle so thanks for that adrian good stuff you got anything else any other cool stuff found to uh mention john before we before we let the band take over here nope i think it's time we made it through the show (laughs) I hope whatever I have is doesn't get any crazier than this. Fog mode. Scratchy yeah. throat. Headache. Take your vitamins. Yeah, I, I've been taking Tylenol. That that was like, I took some ah. of that and that, like, I'm still fuzzy, you know, like I have that fuzzy feeling, but instead of fuzzy with a headache and pissed, I'm like fuzzy and, and I actually kind of feel a little high is all it is. You know, so that's fine, I guess. I mean, it get annoying after a while, but, you know, better than the alternative of the head. No, no fever, though. So, uh, who knows? All right. Well, that's all we sure got. sure that was Tylenol? I am sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. Like, the fuzziness is, is, is not related to the Tylenol. That's just related to whatever I have. But when you take the headache away, then it's actually kind of nice for a little while. You know. But, yes, I'm sure it was Tylenol. Extra strength kind. Two of them, even. I know, and, and I, I'm only supposed to take it, uh, you know, there's a maximum amount you can take every day because otherwise it starts causing stomach problems. I'm aware. I'm, I'm actually not a huge fan of taking anything, but uh, when you have a podcast to do and you don't want to have a splitting headache through the show, you know, treating the symptom is all right for the short term. Pilot Pete wasn't here today, but... You can go check out his podcast, So There I Was. That's his new aviation podcast. And we got him up on Apple Music this week's uh, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, whatever we're supposed to call it. But yes, you can find it in Apple Podcasts and all of your favorite podcatchers. So you don't have to go to So There I Was.us and subscribe, but you could, or you can just subscribe. So yeah, he's got like, I think, I don't know, 10 episodes out now. So yeah, it's good stuff. I love the show. Have you listened yet, John? No. Oh, I highly recommend it. I think you'd like it. I mean, like, like that whole, we did a great segment in uh, post show last week where you were asking Pete about what it, like, how do you start an air, an, the engines on an airplane? It's fascinating. Basically like jump starting a car. I think we sent that, that clip out to our premium listeners too. So, 
If you're not a premium listener yet, MacGeekGab.com slash premium. That's where you can go if you want to help support the show directly. And uh, and you get access to our special email address, premium at MacGeekGab.com. Yeah, we'd love to love to have you there if you are if you are not already there and you want to be, you don't have to be there, but if you'd like to be there, MacGeekGab.com slash premium. There you go. All right, folks. Do you have anything else to share, John, or is it time to go? It's time, time to wrap it up. Time to wrap. All right, folks. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks to Cashfly for providing all the bandwidth. Check out our sponsors and our deals at MacGeekUp.com slash sponsors. And uh, come join our Discord chat. Someday John will be there. MacGeekUp.com slash Discord. We're having fun there. Mr. Braun, what do you have to say for yourself or for them? All I got to say is I'm glad during my travels far and wide that I didn't get caught. Made up.